All right, we're back with a new episode, and uh, the world is, well, unfortunately, not slightly marginally less bad than it was between the last episodes. It's actually uh, more than marginally worse, you know. A small portion of America is on fire, with uh, more portions being uh, forecasted to burn. There's an island in the uh, Caribbean that is literally burning. Uh, throwing out plumes of smoke so big that uh, it's blotted out the sun, and uh, satellite images are actually amazing and breathtaking, but also horrifying. And uh, I've got my good man Steve here. We have not got Craig, unfortunately. He was busy. So we're just going to drop in with something that's not bad news at all. His real doll needs attention. Probably. Probably. Could be. I don't even know. I, I have no idea what that is and disavow any knowledge of any such thing. <laughs> you don't know what a real doll is? Uh, I'm going to say that uh, for... Uh, sure. No. What, what is one of it's, those? It's the horrible mistake that you click on in, in Pornhub when all of a sudden you realize somebody's having sex with something that's not really alive and that nobody should be having sex with. So it isn't something that would have anything to do with a comedian by the name of Peter Coffin. It would, it might, I don't know. I don't know who that is. Pop okay. culture references and I don't get along so well. Oh, that's a deep, deep cut, too. Well, um, suffice it to say that he had a, uh, either girlfriend or wife for a while that, uh, well, she was, uh, she was very real, you know? At least to him. Well, I mean, the pictures were real, and she was probably real, you know, real brand. <laughs> yeah, no, nope, nope, not a, not a fan. You, you click on that, and then things aren't moving the way they're supposed to, and you're like, oh, something is horribly wrong. It's the uncanny valley. It, mm. it exists. It exists at all levels of, of the human brain. And you can have it for just a couple grand. Just a few. I can I mean, make better uses of my money. I really can. I mean, hookers are cheaper. I'm just saying. Oh, I'm not even going to get into the story on that. But I will say that everybody who's interested should look up Real Doll Brothel. Don't do it on Google, because you don't want that in your uh, search history. But it's a thing. And, yes, the implication is exactly what you think it is. So, uh, as you shudder and cringe at the thought of that, let's go ahead and drop into the show. We're going to talk about a, um, something interesting that happened that isn't actually as interesting isn't actually as interesting as it sounds on the surface, but is nonetheless pretty cool. So, the Aztec Upgrade Experimental Facility has generated class. Arztec. Arztec. I believe so. Uh, they may have misspelled it, wouldn't surprise me. So why don't you oh, make no, some you're right. sense? Aztec. I was thinking it was something else. Yep, oh, my bad. Yeah, no problem. So this is, uh, I guess, the best way to really drop in quickly is to say that they've been uh, one of the places that has actually been working on fusion power over the past decades, where a lot of other people have been kind of throwing a small amount of money in a money fire instead of actually researching anything. If, uh, if I'm paraphrasing correctly. <laughs> Uh, not not quite. I mean, so so the problem that you have with fusion that you don't have with fission, and, and to, to to give folks an idea here, is uh, with fission, 
it's it's actually pretty easy. If I have a neutral particle going at a neutral uh, going into an atom, it's not really interacting with that outer shell of electrons. It's not really interacting with the positively charged nucleus core. So there's no real resistance. And what ends up happening with fusion is while there's like six times more energy when we start fusing things, at least at the hydrogen level, and there is, you know, per nuclide, uh, so it's so a per unit mass essentially, there's six times more energy than there is for fission. Uh, we also have to overcome this huge energy boundary, which is the charged particles at the surface of the thing, which is the same reason why you don't fall through the floors and plummet horrendously towards the center of Earth and die in a fiery death. Right, the, that, that electron shell keeps those atoms apart. So we have to overcome that. And then on top of that, uh, the, pro, the positively charged nuclei need to uh, interact with each other and bond and let the strong and weak nuclear forces take over as opposed to the electromagnetic force, which is kind of repelling it at that point. Um, so when we talk about fusion, we always talk about this high energy stuff. And this is all of the fusion facilities are trying to overcome this. And they're trying to overcome it uh, with some form of confinement, right? A star uses gravitational confinement. It's surrounded by a vacuum. Nothing has anywhere to go. And there's just a whole mass of it that keeps it all together. And so the energy released by fusion is balanced by the gravitational force on the outside uh, pushing back in. And that's how stars work. Well, trying to recreate the whole thing on Earth, we obviously don't have that much mass that we can throw at a reaction to confine all the, plas uh, all the, all the particles together. So we're trying to do uh, two different things. One is going to be uh, essentially inertial confinement, and that's your laser types, where they basically fire a whole bunch of lasers at a hydrogen fuel pellet or some sort of fuel pellet. And they try to fire all of these lasers, which uh, produce a ton of energy in the outward shell of these targets and forces them together that overcomes that Coulomb barrier. And in the stuff that is in your, more of your, um, your let, like donut shape reaction. Let me stop you for a quick half second. Sure. I think I know what a Coulomb barrier is. And I'm gonna say that at least half the listening audience is not at all. You mind giving us okay. a quick TLDR? So, so the TL, well, it's, it's the same thing that I just talked about. The Coulomb barrier is the charged particle, or the charged repulsion effect from negatively charged particles like electrons repelling each other and positively charged particles like protons repelling each other. Okay, so, so kind of the reason why electrons, neutrons, and all that kind of swim around in a uh, self-repulsing sort of uh, soup. Well, it's the same reason, like I said, that you don't fall through the floor, right? What's actually occurring, your floor is not, not any more solid than anything else. I mean, it sort of is, obviously, but... The reason you don't fall through your floor is the electrons in the outer shell of the atoms of the floor uh, repel the outer shells of your foot. And so you're essentially being, uh, what, we, what we don't see is we're essentially being pushed upwards at the same rate that we're being pushed downwards because the electron-to-electron -electron repulsion is significantly greater than the force of gravity. And that's why we, are, we can't go through solid objects. That Coulomb barrier is why we can't move through solid objects. So in the grossest sense, kind of like the way that two uh, magnetic poles repel each other. Exactly. Exactly. And in order to uh, – where, where fusion occurs is when the nuclei themselves combine. So, right? and when, so this, again, to put it very, very grossly, is that – this would be like you're putting two very powerful magnets into contact with each other, or actually in this case, like pushing them together so much that they become one. 
Essentially, yes. Okay. And that's that's kind of what the Coulomb barrier is. So you only have a, whole, a couple ways to deal with that, and that is we have to confine these particles, forcing them to interact with each other with a significant amount of energy. So that's why – that's one of the reasons why when and we start – you start hearing – What's that? Hence the laser pressure method you were talking about. The laser pressure method is one of them. The other one is plasma confinement. So the laser fires on a target, but the uh, the ASDEX, uh, as well as a, a lot of the toroidal accelerators, they're attempting to do it with uh, fusion plasma, right? So one of the reasons why cold fusion was desirable back in the day before we kind of ruled that out as a, an illegitimate field is it promised to do it at really low energies, whereas whether you're using laser, uh, laser particles to bombard your target, which would be known as inertial confinement, or plasma physics where you're just superheating these things up so they're zipping around super fast and slam into each other, uh, breaking that Coulomb barrier, where basically everything gets heated up to that point. Um, that is kind of your, your plasma confinement where you're using electromagnetic fields to confine this stuff and superheat it. And the ASDEX is in this latter category. So uh, the ASDEX facility has just recently gotten an upgrade to its diverter. And uh, I think the thing that makes me laugh when you read this is they're like, oh, this has finally allowed it to operate closer to what it would look like in a real, you know, operational facility. And you're like, okay, so why weren't they doing that to start? (laughs) what was the point in building something that wasn't something that you could use only to later upgrade it to something that you could use? And this is one of the problems that you have with a lot of fusion stuff is uh, fundamentally these are the kind of issues you have. We're not throwing enough enough money at it. We're not investing heavily enough in these projects. And so the reason that fusion is always 20 years away is because we're never actually building the facilities that can generate fusion in the first place and then going, oh, my God, look, fusion failed. I mean, the, 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 the physics is very clear. Fusion will work, but we're also going to actually have to try to build it and get it operational and uh, throw the money at it and do things like build operational-style plants rather than theoretical physical physics reactors, which is what we've been doing. So, what, basically they finally built one that will do the job? Uh, kind of. They, uh, so, so one of the problems that you have is that the, the best reactions are kind of your hydrogen isotopes, right? Um, we've talked a little bit about here about deuterium. Deuterium is very, very desirable because the, uh, we're, the, the units that we typically deal with for nuclear reactions is MEVs or uh, mega electron volts, it's a million electron volts, and an electron volt is the energy gained by an electron, uh, you know, accelerated in a one-volt field. So it actually has a direct correlation to joules and watts, and it's just very, very tiny. It's like uh, 6.02 or 1.602 or something like that. I don't know the exact conversion off the top of my head, but times 10 to the minus 19th joules. So it's a very tiny unit of energy, but... When you get a whole lot of atoms doing it all at once, it turns into a really, really large sum of energy. And we could even express chemical reactions in MEVs, but the uh, the amount you get per atom for chemical reactions is like one one millionth of a nuclear reaction. So it's not particularly practical to do that. It's much more practical to do, hey, I've got a million of these atoms uh, to get the same kind of results that we're seeing with hydrogen. But for deuterium, we get roughly... 
Uh, so the, the Coulomb barrier, going back to that, it requires 0.6 MeVs of energy per particle involved in the reaction to overcome that, that Coulomb barrier, right? In order to overcome it, 0.6 MeVs of energy have to be into the particle on top of whatever initiation stuff they have. Like, that's, that's, that's the minimum energy requirement. If you do deuterium, you get 12 MeVs per particle out. If you do uh, just a hydrogen, hydrogen will uh, hydrogen will combine with another hydrogen, and it'll become a deuterium. It'll basically uh, convert the proton into a neutron, but you only get six MeVs out of that reaction. So if we go with the deuterium, the reason that's a, a desirable reaction is that you get um, you get roughly uh, 20 times more energy out of the uh, a fusion of two deuterium particles then you need to get them to actually initially fuse, whereas you only get 10 times as much energy out of normal standard hydrogens. And for reference, deuteriums, uh, the, if you poured yourself an 8-ounce glass of water, there is enough deuterium in that, even though it's like 0.015% of all the hydrogen there, there is enough deuterium in that glass of water to power your house for four days. That's how much energy is available to us by a fusion, just as a reference point. Um, I know it's kind of crazy. It really, it really is. But when we start talking about the um, these reactors, they have they've just kind of like the diverter in this case, which is what they really upgraded. Is uh, like I mentioned, you have this huge differential in energy output per unit reaction. We can actually react elements all the way up into I think oxygen. Or something like that. The, the one that we get nothing out of is iron. Um, but I think it goes all the way up through oxygen and various, like we can add protons to it, we can do this kind of thing, but we get less and less energy per unit um, per unit mass. So what we really want to do is we want to take some of these waste products that we're generating, some of the heliums and some of the other stuff, until we get better magnetic confinement so that we can keep it at these really high energy yield reactions from the hydrogens and the deuteriums and the tritiums. That's, that is why they're putting this thing in. It's not completely useless. The, 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 the funny part is that they, they had this. They already had a diverter, but they're actually upgrading it to one that would work in a more like power plant type operational way. And you're kind of like, well, why didn't you do that in the first place? They didn't like – it wasn't a broken machine, but it's one of those things where so – They've been running on something like a prototype this whole time? Pretty much, yeah. Or, or more like, uh, imagine, imagine for a moment that you, uh, you needed to get to work. So you built yourself a car, and it was a fantastic car. You got the shell of a Beamer, and then you sat there and put a golf cart, a, a golf cart engine in that Beamer, right? Yeah, it'll go, but that's, that's not to say that it'll go very well or very fast or much like the namesake vehicle, and they're basically getting an actual Beamer engine to put inside that vehicle. Ah, in this case, one of the four cylinders as opposed to one of V8, right? Uh, I mean, probably. You know, material science has come a long way. So realistically, the diverter is probably... It, I mean, I using it as, a, as an engine is probably an inaccurate thing. It's probably more like having a little mini muffler for a golf cart versus... A, uh, an actual properly sized uh, thing. There's better investments being made in the electromagnetic materials that are surrounding these toroidal shapes. 
than there is in a lot of the other stuff. And the toroidal shapes, by the way, um, if you want if you want a good like visual exercise in what these laser systems would look like, that's not what I'm talking about when I talk about the toroids. But uh, watch the uh, the the expanse. The expanse actually at some point in I think season two or three, they uh, that's how their fusion drive engines are projected to work, and they actually show the fuel pellets being bombarded by a laser, and then it all of a sudden not working. So it's right when they kind of get into the ring. Um, but the toroids, the toroids are really what a lot of people kind of see more for fusion. The biggest problem with the toroids is, again, that you have to superheat every single atom up to that, like, 0.6 MeV of energy, and it's actually quite a bit. So to give you an idea, room temperature, uh, most particles are traveling around with about 0.025 EV. So to get up to, uh, you know, 0.6 MeV, right, we're talking about accelerating these particles by, like, 40 times uh, roughly 600,000. So 2.4 million-ish degrees kind of thing, or 2.4 million times the kinetic energy of room temperature particles, which is, is a lot. And that requires a tremendous amount of energy investment to get there. Once they generate the plasma, they have to basically keep it running, and then they have to try to feed fuel in at the same time that it's running. And they've got calculations that support the ability to do this. The problem is that, you know, we've had to build them on bigger and bigger scales, whereas now we're starting to move into the material science phase of things, which is uh, going to be better electromagnets, which means smaller reactors, which means less energy to get to plasma and more energy out from that plasma. So, and, and in this case, this is just adding a piece of equipment that uh, helps keep that reaction running precisely rather than having impurities, which uh, kind of impair that ability. And it's, it would be the kind of thing that, like, Imagine that we had really crappy gasoline rather than the stuff that we do now, where you just kind of, you know, you went in, you went into your average grocery store and grabbed a random bottle of vegetable oil, right? Different vegetable oils are going to have different purities, and if you happen to grab a bad batch of vegetable oil, your engine's not going to run all that well. It's the same kind of thing with fusion. Okay, fair enough. Yeah, I'm, as I'm reading in this, too, the article, it's it kind of makes that clear, the... Um, says they've got a conversion plan for mid-2022, which is intended to prepare the plant for the future. And the goal of their research is to develop is to develop a power plant with uh, the talk of finally building, uh, what is this, uh, therefore be used to develop operating modes for a potential power plant. So... Right, and that's, that's kind of the thing, is they've got theoretical exercises, but... Yeah, Again, like, uh, really, if you want to turn on your... Why not just go ahead? We we do understand how it's going to work well enough to know that it's not going to turn into some black hole or some self-feeding... Well, every single fire. time you turn it on, you have to heat that plasma, that entire chamber, which is largely the size of a small warehouse. You have to heat that up to millions of degrees, or at least tens of thousands of degrees. I think it's millions, though. Um, yeah, if you're having heat some, that much, if you have to put that much energy in, it's not cheap, cheap to flip the, the switch on that, right? Like each trial run is, is very, very expensive because the amount of energy required is 
quite a bit. And because they haven't quite managed to break the energy threshold, they're not actually generating any energy off of that, which means it's literally just a money sink each time they do it. Now, they're getting pretty close. I think they're at like 0.99 or something like that percent of energy in versus energy out. So, uh, so if, if I'm not mistaken, that would be that they have not yet broken unity? I do not believe they have broken unity yet. Now, granted, one of the, the problems that you have is there's a lot of other stuff that's technically happening in the background, right, outside of these research reactors. So I believe Lockheed Martin back in 2014 announced that they had made some major breakthrough in fusion. And their Skunk Works, which is kind of their rapid prototyping design team, was hoping to have a fusion reactor prototype built by, like, 2020, 2021. And they were going to hope to hit mainstream commercial production by 2025, 2026. So I don't know whether that's real, because I haven't heard anything else about it. But when we start talking, and then you have other things like the Stellarator. The Stellarator used a unique, uh, rather than just using a standard kind of toroid shape, they used uh, unique shapes to, to try to generate those plasmas on a much smaller scale. There's a guy out in MIT land over there in Boston who's got something that's like a garage-sized thing that he did with new electromagnets. So uh, my understanding is that we haven't really achieved unity, but we're really, really close to unity. Okay. Like, we're really, really close and had, you know, I think the kicker is that had we spent the money 60 years ago when we kind of, like, figured out fission for the most part and just had, like, minor, well, I don't want to say minor, but, you know, in process improvements to go, had we spent the money on fusion, we could have had this technology 30, 40 years ago and uh, had none of the problems that we have today. I mean, what would we complain about? Oh, I'm, I'm sure that there are plenty of things our overlords and oligarchs could find for us to quabble over. Oh, I'm sure. Because that's what they're going to do. I mean, like, uh, you know, did you get your uh, did you get your Trump back yet? Did you, did you go out and get your Trump jab? Never. You know, did you uh, did you go out and participate in our Operation Warp Speed? I was uh, I was getting some shit about that today on Twitter. Really? Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, they're, um... Uh, so, uh, what was my exact word? I said, uh, you don't trust the vaccines Trump helped put into place? <laughs> and, just, you know... He's trying to cause some shit. Uh, I was. I was. To, uh, to one Joe Walsh, uh, an ironic... Fo- yeah, st- yeah, still a follower of mine. Somehow, um... He initially said that he would take up his musket for Donald Trump. Uh, he has, since that time, uh, turned into a uh, neocon rhino that <clears throat> doesn't really want to conserve much of anything, and he's he seems to like Joe Biden for some reason. So, I guess, more power to you. He follows me through all this nonsense, and I kind of prod at him with these questions every once in a while. Well, I mean, I think that we got to we, – we do need to – like we talked a little bit in the, the pre-show about how Trump kind of screwed himself. But I, I think we do need to appreciate for a moment the power of the media and social media 
to literally all alter the narrative and then take like the primary solution America has to get out of this thing and not give Trump any credit whatsoever for any of it. Yeah, it's pretty like, astounding. And I mean, um, it, it is. It is like when you look at it, it's. It's pretty stunning that they basically turned around and said he was botching the entire thing, only to have it be that the day after the election, all of a sudden, all these companies were releasing the fact that their vaccine was ready to go. Yeah, yeah, that uh, that was conveniently timed. Was indeed. Uh, it's just a coincidence, I'm sure. I'm sure it was. They had, uh, they were, they were probably, they probably slept in, you know, you do that sometimes. You're, you're nope. real tired after working on a vaccine to, you know, save people and everything. But hey, you know, what do I know? I'm not some biologician, so it would be outside of my field of expertise. All I know is that we've been lied to, you know, all our lives, so... Just remember, I might even be lying to you now. I'm not, but, you know, just kind of approach the world that way. I'd also rather tell you good people the truth. And you too. You know, because it's just easier telling the truth. Lies are significantly more complicated in the world. So, nah, nah, nah. I'll save the, uh, I'll save the good lies for later. We'll drop into something else uh, a little bit less dark and dreary. Um... Wasn't there? Oh yeah, we'll we'll pass on that one because uh, that's super dark and dreary for the moment. But we do have something fun and interesting. Uh, if you'll scroll back up to uh, just a couple days ago, I linked something from uh, who was this? Fizzorg about the uh, current climate model simulations overestimating the sea level rise. Uh, yes. This is yes. good stuff. This. This will bring a smile to your heart and a little bit of joy to your day. I'll make sure. And of course, this will all be linked down below or to the side or above or wherever the hell it is on whatever service you're watching and or listening to this. But the long so, short is you were lied to. So let's, let's well, hop into that. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, you know, Evan, I'm gonna I'm gonna say that at some point we should set up like an actual organized show rather than just riffing on this stuff, or Craig and I go in and put forth some of our better arguments against climatology, or or, or kind of really I walk really through get somebody point of that, view. that actually supports you know traditional ideas of climate change to just come on and discuss the whole thing with all of us. I think that would be a, a valuable thing. I haven't had a lot of luck. But, hey, if uh, anyone that's listening knows anyone that might be interested in the conversation, I'd be happy to have it. But, I mean, if you want to start talking about, like, the central theme of me and my kind of, like, issue with a lot of these sciences, uh, you know, I, I'm a STEM guy. Well, it's bad much science, like them, right? Right? Well, uh, yeah. It, it, and that's really the core of it. Is is it's, you have it's, it's sloppy, ugly science. It's not it's not even like pretty bad science. It's it's garbage. Well, it, it, it's kind of tough to sit there and talk about it that way. The issue that you have is that climatology is it basically hops press release to press release to press release. 
So what ends up happening is everybody who wants to root on renewable energy or whatever other disastrous idea the progressives have for the planet will sit there and wait for this crazy, crazy result. And it'll say something like, we're all going to die. Now, granted, there's some caveats to this, which I've talked about before. They don't use numbers in climate change, in, in climate science. Anytime you want to talk about climate change, there's no numbers involved. They don't tell you how much it's going to cost for their solution. They don't tell you how much it's going to cost for climate change. They don't give you a period of time over which these changes are purportedly going to occur. They won't even sit there and isolate the exact value upon which the change was supposed to be. And so what you get is you have this completely like information devoid argument talking about the disasters of climate change while simultaneously ignoring any actual solutions or sitting there and proposing solutions to problems which we haven't evaluated for the simple cost benefit of are we spending more to solve this than it's actually worth. Now the biggest uh, disaster that purportedly comes out of climate change is always sea level rise. That's always what they go back to because the cities will get drowned. Now uh, realistically if you go back through the literature, the traditional uh, mainstream view for climate has been that the expected sea level rise over the next 100 years is only about a foot to three feet at the very most, which again, absolutely huge fucking range, right? Plus, plus or minus 150 percent is should be considered unacceptable oh, wow. that for policy. Uh, well, that, yeah, that's a little. Or sorry, plus or minus 100 percent. It's. I mean, if if you took the midstream okay. view of two to, of two feet, right, and that was the mainstream, the low end is one foot and the high end is three feet. Now, granted, you tar start talking about, hey, which scenarios are most plausible? The three feet pretty much gets ruled out almost immediately, and the more probable value is going to be in the one to two feet range, assuming everything is true. But what this study came and found is that those estimates are roughly 25% too high, which is a lot. Like, 100%, plus or minus 100% is unacceptable. Plus or minus 25% is also unacceptable. And this is the problem that you have with, with folks like myself, who are numbers guys, who we have to make these kinds of decisions that actually reflect, you know, public interest and spending and the value of the dollar. Money and lives. Money and lives, right? We have to make these decisions. And when they're sitting there and they're coming out and they're saying, hey, guess what? Uh, it could be between one and three feet. Okay. okay. Well, first off, but three feet's really not that bad over 100 years, right? You get probably five full infrastructure rebuilds of anything around the coastline over that period of time. So even if you were to talk about three feet, that's going to be covered with less than a foot of change that's probably going to be less than a foot of change between any two of those things so three feet is is really something that we can very easily adapt to one foot is something that is even more easily to adapt to so you can actually see us and see some of the machines that we've built to lay bricks and we can basically put a layer of bricks down we can put thousands of bricks down and entire sidewalks and stuff like that around our parks and our nation's waterways and seawalls very very quickly and we certainly have enough time to do that over the next 100 years. It's not an insurmountable problem. But oh, that's a fair point. when all of a sudden you find, up, find out that the actual range is 25% less than that, so it's between three-quarters of a foot or eight inches and, you know, two and a half feet, 
that's a that's a very bad place to be. <laughs> like I'm not I'm not super okay with. That's again, a pretty large amount of uh, variance. It would still be a large amount of variance, and I'm not sure what their exact value is, but they're probably just chopping it. most of the time when they do these kinds of like. You know, they present their value that they get to get all their publication and press off of and get it to, you know, rally everybody together for the, the progressive cause. They they usually walk back only the top end numbers, and they walk them back quite a bit. And it's usually six, six, six months to uh, a year or two later. And then all of a sudden they'll publish a paper saying, oh, yeah, well, by the way, it really wasn't that bad. And it only gets picked up by the, uh, by the skeptics and, and the, the non-politicized community. Because well, newspapers need to sell you something, and fear is an easy an easy monetary gain for them. Whereas you know everything's going to be okay is not. You know, so. it's really a shame because there's so much interesting shit that's legitimately happening. Material science has actually interesting stories new every week because so much is happening in the field. Just material science. You know, things with uh, graphene, things with uh, superconductors, room temperature superconductors. We're, we're almost there. I think we might be there, at least in the laboratory. I mean, things are... The world might be on fire, but not all of it. I mean, for fuck's sake, people. Well, and this is kind of the, 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 the real issue is... Oh, man. This is kind of the real issue is that they basically they, – they sell uh, a much larger problem than really exists. And more importantly, they, they, baked into these assumptions is this – we're never going to have – A, we have the technology to solve these problems today, right? We have the problems – the technology to do that. We have the technology 60 years ago. We know the path forward on energy. We know the path forward on infrastructure. And realistically, we haven't even begun to approach the debate of even if we could stop climate change from happening, right? Assuming that we could, right? Is it a better investment to sit there and, you know, suspend fossil fuel burning and suspend heating your house and all these other stuff and basically, you know, kick us back to an agrarian lifestyle? Uh, as opposed to building the natural barriers around these places that are still going to get hit by natural disasters regardless of whether climate change occurs or doesn't occur, whether it's better to sit there and actually eliminate the threat uh, with some amount of money or invest in all of this other stuff that might possibly subdue some of the effects. And, and that's a, a terrible thing. Like you take a look at, at uh, the Houston floods that was, what, a few, few years ago, right? Yeah. 20, 2017, 2018, somewhere in there. Yeah, we're not talking about the Houston freeze. We're talking about the flood, so yeah. The floods, yeah. So, yeah because the freeze could have been stopped. The flood, well, that's a little it less was, able to be planned for. That was a unique case of a massive hurricane happening right after a massive rainstorm where basically the delta had a whole bunch of water that needed to be blent, uh, tossed off into the sea, and the storm surge was coming in, so basically the water had nowhere to go. After this, one of the proposals that they talked about doing was building something called the Spine of the World, and it sounds pretty badass name. That I have to cool say it myself. Like Texans really know how to name things. They're they're at least Texans are at least as good about naming as as the left is about most of their movements. But the Spine of the World was essentially a a, a, a seawall sort of 
but not really a seawall. More of, of kind of like a, a structure that would connect a lot of these little chain islands along the bay and build them up so that it was going to be a certain distance above the sea. And then when major hurricanes or uh, major storms came, they could actually either uh, – basically it would be open to ships and whatnot – uh, but during a major storm, it would close up, seal up, and they would basically pump out the bay so that when a hurricane came, uh, the structure would have the ability of actually keeping floodwaters completely at bay, making the threat of a future storm go away entirely. Hmm. And all, all that, expensive, $50 billion is expensive, well, and I think that was sure. the proposal. But imagine eliminating all future storm damage to the city of Houston. That is the price that we're talking about paying versus, you know, trillions of dollars in climate. Uh, you know, $50 billion is nothing in comparison to Joe Biden's $5 trillion climate plan, right? It's, it's paltry, and it would protect the city and all of its residents, right? And we could em embark in some major infrastructure projects like that in many places, which would utterly eliminate the threats associated with, uh, you know, climate <laughs> And if climate is as much of a natural phenomenon as the skeptics believe, or you know it's it's all entirely caused by humankind, we wouldn't have to make these trade-offs between suffering and extreme poverty because we gave up fossil fuels and decided not to pursue nuclear energy because we're idiots, or uh, you know sitting there and investing in renewables which don't work. We could have this third option, which is infrastructure build-outs that would utterly eliminate these engineering and infrastructure build-outs that would eliminate these problems to begin with. And these are things that we can do with our current technology. They aren't things that are crazy far off. And it really is kind of detrimental that they would much rather talk about how we have impending doom from rising sea levels by using exaggerated numbers that they have to walk back six months to a year later. We do see that quite a lot these days, especially as the uh, science keeps expanding and Freedom of Information Acts keep getting filed. That uh, a lot of the numbers just aren't good. I mean, they're legitimately bad numbers. And bad numbers makes for bad science, and bad science makes for uninformed decisions. Yep. And stupid knee-jerk reactions to orange men that you hate. But anyway. Well, I mean, I, I, again, you know, I think part of part of Trump's problem was also that he was an executive manager, and so he didn't really need to know about things. He paid people to know about things for him, and a lot of people don't really understand that. Yeah. You don't yeah, have that. to be the smartest guy in the room. You just have to hire the smartest guy in the room, and you have to know how to handle all of that stuff. So yeah. they'd start asking Trump questions, and he'd be like, I don't know. Like, I'm, I'm not the science guy. I, I pay the science guy to, to come up with the answers to these questions. Yep. Unfortunately, he paid the wrong science guy to, uh, in the form of Fauci. You know, maybe he should have just said, Fauci, you know, maybe stick to what you know. Hang out in some brothels or some, uh, you know, bathhouses and, you know, figure out what you can figure out about COVID from there. That's, that's, that's where you're needed. That's, that's your field. That's your passion. You do that, and we'll get somebody that knows a little bit better about this to talk about. Well, I mean, I think the the biggest problem is that he had a, he hired a lot of people who he hired a lot of people who had a lot of decent credentials, but weren't willing to stand up to the media. 
And he, you know, the first, the first few years Trump stood up to the media, and in the last few years he didn't. And the difference between, like, and that's partially because every single time he said something negative about the press or he said something negative about whatever was going on, they would come after him and lambaste him. And that was the whole, like, three-year, you know, oh, my dear God, you know, he's secretly a Russian asset kind of thing. I think that, that he, he kind of wussed out towards the end there. He absolutely did. He absolutely did. If he'd have been, uh, he he didn't even need to be like a strongman dictator. He just needed to use the powers that were available to him. But he, for some reason, decided not to. I, I want to say that Jared Kushner probably had a hand in that decision because we know he's had a hand in some of his other terrible decisions. So maybe so. Uh, yeah, yeah. He seems to be really good at uh, screwing things up for the man. And, well, who knows? Who knows? Maybe he's good for something. Maybe we'll see. I hope it doesn't have to do with him having anything to do with politics in 2024, because I'll be as far away from voting for that man as I probably can be. But, on the note of uh, people not to vote for, I've got another one that uh, I did drop. I hope you got a chance to look over this, but I mean, it's really something that everybody pretty much should already know. I think I just, uh, yeah, I just put it into the chat. But basically, long and short, is uh, sociopaths and psychopaths going to sociopath and psychopath. Ah, yes. And the article, uh, long and short, people with the uh, dark triad of personality traits are known to use victimhood to gain advantage of other over others, as the article states. And as we all know, because that's pretty much exactly what it is. If you've ever had to deal with an abusive person, you've dealt with it directly. They don't... Even when they do feel things, it kind of doesn't matter to them. Because well, they have a goal. Now, and this is obviously not the case in all people. I'm, I'm speaking more yeah. in the terms of a, a, a sociopath. A psychopath, uh, a real psychopath doesn't feel the things, and so they just have goals and achieve them, and you can only hope that they've been raised well. A sociopath, there's maybe not hope for them. Depends on how well, they've, uh, their own inclinations. Uh, so so this, is, this is actually an interesting thing. Oh, it absolutely um, is. Oh, the dark tribe, by the way. Narcissism psychopathy and Machiavellianism. And by the way, the prince was not an instruction manual. It was meant to talk shit about a prince. Uh, it was sort of meant to be a guide. At least, uh, at least... A guide to of, identifying uh, shitty people, but yes. It wasn't, it wasn't... The, when, when the guy, I can't remember the guy's name, when he wrote it, it wasn't, it wasn't that he was attempting to guide somebody who he felt was completely incompetent to give him some suggestions in how he better rule because he's probably an idiot. Um, and the, the background story was this was in Italy way back. I think it was Italy, right? Uh, yeah, Machiavelli. Machiavelli, yeah. Well, of course it was Machiavelli. Uh, and so, so the prince, uh, basically, the king had died, and Machiavelli really loved the king. And so the prince came to power as like a 15-year-old kid. And he'd kind of been into drunken debauchery before, so Machiavelli had zero hope that this, he would be a good king. And basically the arguments laid out in The Prince were essentially, well, if you can't be a good king, you might as well be a really shitty person. 
Because then, at least, you won't lose your kingdom. Yeah, yeah, I mean, that's, um, that's roughly accurate. Bravo, so, you, you really summed that up uh, pretty nicely. Uh, that's, that's kind of the premise. Um, so, so when we start talking about these the, the dark triad traits, and, and I know that Craig is a big fan of them, um, basically there's a whole bunch of, like, personality disorders. And, uh, you know, I'll be honest, you, you know these people when you meet them, right? Like you get, well, you, you find out quickly enough. They, they reveal themselves by their nature. They, they do. So, so if you are, are somewhat cognitively aware, right, I've only sat down with people who are truly, truly, like I actually have a family member who I would say has a lot of these traits, and they kind of unnerve me and skeeve me out, but they're, they're semi-harmless because they're ineffectual. Um, that being said, I have also sat down with these people, and when you deal with people who are truly in the psychopathy domain, like the hairs on the back of your neck stand up. Uh, the the true sociopaths, the true psychopaths, they 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 creep you out. There's a lot of people who will be, you know, you might hear people call somebody a sociopath. A lot of times, most people aren't. They're not very common in society. In prison, the estimated amount is is roughly 10% of the population. In the general population, it's 1%. So one out of every 100 people you meet entirely at random is going to fall into this category. And if you have any sense, you will know exactly what's going on. Because you, will, you feel like you're dealing with a predator. Like, there's a hungry lion at that table and he wants to eat you. And uh, it's nothing that they will specifically do because they have to kind of mask themselves. But they're very scary individuals and you just feel very unnerved. I've only met a handful of them. And you know who they are. Um, when you start talking about these traits, this study actually backs up a lot of other stuff that has done analysis on the left versus the right. And uh, a lot of these studies come out, so, so I have a lot more faith in something that highlights negative traits on the left than the right, simply because psychology has a 96% of them are liberal. So anything that is favorable to liberals is going to generally get by, whereas anything that's favorable to conservatives undergoes a lot more scrutiny. It's not, it's not straight, strictly con speaking confirmation bias. It's, well, I mean, if we look at Sokol squared, we can see that pretty clearly. Right. So when we start talking about what are, what are we looking at when we start looking at these negative traits, um, what, we, what we know is from a young age, children are largely sociopaths, like young kids. They're, you see these, these cute little TikToks and YouTube videos and Facebook videos. That child knows he's getting a toy because he's making mommy's heart warm. And that is the entire reason that he's doing the cute thing instead of murdering his you know, sibling. So children are largely sociopaths. They, uh, they just happen to be largely confined in the household. But that's why you have the, the terrible twos and the no phase and a lot of these other things parents have. They are literally dealing with a sociopath and trying to train them to not be a sociopath. Um, that's not the It does. After you get through your, your kind of classical conditioning phase, you enter a period where um, you, you, you have – most kids go through a phase if they play a game, right, where when they're really young and they get to the, – the game is played out like this. There's, uh, you know, cookies, candies, money, whatever it is, some sort of uh, choice treat that's associated that is, is particularly desirable to that age group. And uh, they will have a game 
where you and a group of others are playing this game together, and then one individual within the group gets to assign how the rewards are done, right? They basically get a metric of who played what, who did what, and then they get to assign the rewards. At the very youngest of ages, and this is where the children are sociopaths thing comes in, the child who is assigned the choice of divvying up the rewards will always choose himself, right? If there are no consequences to not giving re you know, the candy to the other kids, he'll take all the candy, or she'll take all the candy. Um, and that's what happens at the youngest phase. By the time you hit, like, your, your elementary school age kid, they have been socialized, usually to the point, and, you know, had successful interactions. And they actually move, uh, like, I think it's probably elementary school. They move into a new model, which is sharing. Right? It doesn't matter who did what amount of work, everybody gets the same reward. Right? Everybody gets two pieces of candy kind of thing. And then when you start moving into the, uh, the, the teenager or adolescent phase of development, they start moving more towards divvying up uh, rewards based on the amount of work contributed, regardless of whether they are the hardest working individual or they are not the hardest working individual. That's how they will perceive the rewards to be. What has been noticed is that liberals have a tendency to stay stuck at that phase where all they do is share the rewards. They don't progress beyond it. And you run into this is this is great uh, for an empath, a caregiver, or something like that. It's not so great for practical applications of dealing with things. And that means that there is a group of people who exist who all you have to do is convince them that the world is unfair, and they will shower you with money. And that's what this, this study is essentially going into, is it's saying, hey, uh, there is a group of people who has identified that uh, if they claim to be a victim, regardless of the truth of it, people will provide them resources. Now, if this and happens to ring a familiar bell in your head, that's purely a coincidence. Pure coincidence. Surely these people aren't... Uh, well, there's, uh, there's a little bit more to it than that, right? So there's other studies that have come out more recently that have been studying things like virtue signaling. And so we've always – like the old tale used to be the, uh, the Republican who would go out there and be anti-gay, and he would uh, you know, vocally talk about how not gay – how much he hated gay people. And then he would basically be sitting there trying to pick up whoever, whatever man came into the stall next to him. Or, you know, the, the, the pedophile who sits there and lives a life where he is a very pious individual and, you know, doesn't do that. And they, they, they signal their virtue. Uh, more recently, this has moved into new territories, specifically with the left. And this will be things like the annoying vegans. I know vegans that are very nice people. I know a vegan who's a very nice person. I'm going to limit it to one because I only know one. Um, but then the rest of them are the really irritating people who show up on social media doing the, like, hand-clappy thing about how great it is to be a vegan and how terrible you are for eating meat. And this also goes into things like, you're a racist. I'm anti-racist. Those kinds of people all are virtue signaling how good they are at whatever it is, and the whole reason that they do it is because they get resources for it. And this is not a surprise. And they've actually identified this in previous papers. One of the most recent ones was 
that these this, these dark triad traits. I don't think it was dark triad exactly, but it was sociopathy in particular. Uh, could actually be codified along political alignment. So, on on top of having more empaths on the left, there are more people who prey upon the empaths on the left, because it found that sociopathy is much more common on the left, and can actually be identified with um, political testing. Now. Uh, the key thing here is that was a very interesting study, and I've actually talked about it previously, not because it in and of itself was particularly interesting, but when they originally reported the results, they reported it that conservatives were more likely to be sociopaths, except for the fact that they had characterized a negative one as a one, and negative one typing was for conservatives, and positive one typing was for liberals, so they were actually wrong and had to publish an edit to their paper. I'm not sure why it didn't get retracted, but... The edit to the paper was that political testing did identify it, but it was actually the liberals who were more likely to be sociopaths. Yeah. Sorry, we got that completely backwards, actually. Yep. But, you know, no retractions. It just, you know, we'll put it on, you know, page 987, you know, small print at the bottom on in the document. Which, again, goes to why it is that I trust uh, publications that come out of psychology that are less beneficial to progressive causes than those that are not, because they do do things like that, and you do see that routinely. Okay, but this is actually a, pretty normal. If you want to use CNN as a source, I know they're garbage. Right. But I mean, if they're saying it, then, wow. I, I mean, so, so what this really points out is that if you don't want to be a sucker, don't listen to victimhood narratives. That's the best thing that you should take away from this. The second thing that you should take away is the reason that the left has become completely enamored in social justice and wokeness and critical race theory and a lot of these other kind of nonsense concepts is because a lot of them are really good people, right? That's they, they may have stopped, you know, their, their you personal... Know, I've actually said this in private conversations, that a lot of the people that have done a lot of the worst things in recent years aren't intrinsically bad. They've just been yep. lied to. Right, and that's that's kind of what's ended up happening, is the left has always been the bleeding hearts, and that's very good. Like we need empaths in our society. I, you know, I was hanging out with a uh, a gay dude who was fantastically humorous, gay dude, very much an empath. He basically goes and holds the hands of the dying in elderly care facilities. Right, like we need people like that because I couldn't handle it. Right. But at the same time, we also don't need those – it's probably not the best choice to have those people making decisions because at the end of the day, you know, you're going to be forced to choose between the puppy dying. You, you have $100 that can either save a puppy or save a kitten, right? And this is a choice that you're going to face every single day, and the empath will choose to save the puppy and then borrow $100 to go save the kitten, and over time – they basically bury themselves in a giant hole because they've tried to do the right thing too many times. And it shouldn't be a surprise, then, if they are so uh, intrinsically wired to give up their money to good causes that there is a group of people who have identified that and are actively seeking to attract some of those resources because it's easier to sit there and basically uh, you know, prey on this vulnerable group of people than it is to, you know, go out and learn a real skill, like engineering. Now, that being said, I do want to make a very specific point on this topic. Anyone that tries to frame 
any of these arguments in well not not any anyone who tries to frame any of these um how shall i describe them the uh the voter security acts that are going in place across the nation the georgia one in specific is literally the perfect example because it is a compromise it provides expanded hours uh expanded access it provides a state-issued ID in the case that you need one, and it makes it even easier for you to vote, even if you don't. I mean, you need as little as any paper bill and the last four of your social. I mean, you, you really can't quite get much easier than that. So anyone who wants to frame this in any other fashion than that they are supremely racist is either very stupid very smart or very racist and also probably very smart because I find in a lot of my interactions with these people they're um, they're kind of closeted racist and they get very upset when you confront them with it because the long and short of the argument is you're saying that a black guy black girl a, a black zur for that matter can't even figure out how to get an ID, that they're such a lowly animal, such a pathetic creature that they can't even do such a basic thing. Now, this is completely going outside of the comedy bits that we've seen where somebody would go around and ask a bunch of black people in, say, New York City the question, hey, do you have an ID? Because the answer is always yes, because we live in a modern society, and every single person that is functional in the world of today knows at least how to get one, even if they don't have one. So the uh, the idea that these can be framed in any other way is kind of uh, disingenuous. And to see people frame it as racism is pretty much purely just either racism or self-hating racism, in the case of uh, Will Smith just today. Uh, the Fresh Prince, um, you know, being a, being a little prince in his own right, he uh, he came out and said that he thinks that it's terrible that Georgia is making it easier for black people to vote. Those weren't his exact words, but those are what his exact words said. So take it as you will, but that's the way that I recommend anyone frame these arguments, because it's not even a stretch. It's just telling the truth in a slightly different way. Yep. That's that's kind of the problem. So, so having said that, um, familiarize yourself with Alinsky. Rules for Radicals is a great toolbook that you have to be willing to put down when the tools are no longer useful. Because they are ugly tools. And they are uncomfortable to the hand, shall we say. And shouldn't well, really is... be used, but... They are this, very good This is tools. the problem with activists, right? Like, I've, And I've talked about this before. I, I hate activists because activists don't know when to quit. And they're trying to do the right thing, but the problem is that they eventually run out of, like, right things to do. Well, it's been said more than once before on a long enough timeline. You will see yourself as the villain. So, yep. so with, uh, with that, I personally just always try and maintain a really uh, – bare low-level kind of villainy so that 
you know, you can never be too much of a good guy, so you never really, yeah, even if you fall, you don't fall that far. So it all works out that way, right? That's that's good math, isn't it? Yep. Oh, well, there we go, see? So, uh, it's not, unfortunately, like some awesome segue, but I had every intention of talking about this, so I'm going to. So, um, it seems that Joe Biden has decided on a new head for the uh, alcohol, firearms, and tobacco industry. Uh, yeah, the alcohol, yeah, yeah, alcohol, firearms, and tobacco. It's not ATF, it's AFT, that uh, they're going to be getting a new head. This guy, he's got a long, long history of service. Um, I'm not sure if he was at Ruby Ridge, but he has been seen in photos in Waco. Uh, as a matter of fact, he was posing in front of a compound, actually, in Waco in the 90s, uh, showing off uh, some of his trophies, we'll say. In this case, the trophies would be the charred corpses of children that he burned alive. But, uh, you know, there you are. So this is the man that has been chosen to uh, lead one of the worst and least effective governmental agencies that has possibly ever existed. And... Well, I I just urge everyone to do their due diligence, but he's been a, a prominent voice against human rights, at least in the United States, since the middle 90s. So, of course, he'll be, you know, heading up an organization that polices people's human and property rights. Smart, eh? It's always amazing how uh, these people always come back. It's like a... Bad like a revolving door of, yeah. of garbage and sewage and evil. Yep. And boy, I don't know. I actually don't really have any other particularly interesting topics I was wanting to riff on this week. If there's anything else you're wanting to talk about. Otherwise, I'm kind of happy to make this one a short one. You know what? That's uh, That's fine with me. I mean, everything else was, I think we covered most everything else that was really interesting. Yeah. I mean, there is the Chinese, the effectively low, or the, the Chinese oh, vaccine Actually, yeah, we do need to go that's over that because that's, that's going to, you know, it's always good to end on a high note. Let me get a link to that for everybody because, well, I mean, it's it's actually not. It's kind of sad. But, you know, schadenfreude being what it is, we might as well have a laugh at the Chinese for the China virus, right? Yep. All right, let me bring that up here. And uh, there's another one. I'd like to have Craig along for this one to talk about it, but the Pentagon's got a uh, new microchip coming out that, uh, eh, mark of the beast, who knows. But uh, we'll get into that later. But the uh, Chinese vaccines, the multiples, actually, they're not showing anywhere near the level of effectiveness of the biotech uh, Pfizer one or the Moderna vaccine. I don't know if even they uh, are reaching the levels of the uh, Janssen vaccine for that matter but uh, let me get the link for all of you good folks have you got that handy uh which one the, the china facts yeah stuff yeah uh that should be if you just go to show ideas oh no, yeah that's i was asking if you right know. there yeah well oh, basically oh they're, uh, sorry yeah they're basically saying that they um they don't have very high protection rates as i look through this it seems like they might be kind of kind of desperate to get a hold of ours, which would explain some of the uh, 
intelligence uh, faux pas that have happened in the very recent past involving doctors trying to get uh, Chinese, uh, trying to get the data on uh, you know, mer various ones. Actually, I know the uh, I know the French firm had some issues with uh, one of their doctors going rogue. I know there have been at least two um, two high-placed uh, PhDs, I believe, that have been arrested for doing the same thing here in the States, and I believe that's happened at least in Russia as well. Yeah, I mean, it's... Well, so, so what I see here is I see... Um, yeah, they have five vaccines at this time, and the they, best one they've them, got is 79%. Which is so they got roughly... one that's technically 83. Oh, I see. Uh, but each of them. So the problem that they have is that the 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 eth uh, the efficacy is between 50 and 83 percent, right? And that's because their trials are not particularly well done. I can believe so that. So what ends up happening is they uh, they can't quite say whether or not it's really as effective as they say it is because they have sampling issues. So, for instance, um, oh, what is it? Oh, I thought it was something about grabbing a whole bunch of old people. No, but, yeah, all those they have premises already. Every, every place that they've tried it, it, it's not doing so well. And this is, this is by the way, you know, again, um, depending on their, their sampling data and everything else, all of that stuff is one of the reasons why I'm very skeptical of, of the safety overall. That's why I'm holding out. I'm not saying that you should. Uh, but... In this case, uh, it, what the, the surprising story part of the story is not just that vaccine uh, that China is attempting to sit there and steal our vaccine stuff because pretty much China tries to steal everything that they can, but that they're publicly admitting that their vaccines don't work. Yeah, that's that stuff. Yeah, this, to really put a bow on this, or I guess in this case to put a cherry on top, is this comes out of Xinhua, and Xinhua is loathe, absolutely loathe to release anything that is in any way dis even even dismissive of Chinese prowess. So to see something like this come out is a real, um, it's a real blow. Yep. So, as it stands, just to give some base numbers out, just to quote the article, they say 50 to over 79, which would be about the 83% effectiveness, whereas the uh, Pfizer and Moderna are at about 95%, and I believe the uh, Janssen, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, is at something like 75%, but I believe, aside from the recent uh, issues that have come up, which, to my understanding, the recent issues with the Johnson & Johnson vaccine rollout have been environmental factors where the people have been probably too hot when they uh, got the vaccine, and that caused, uh, I believe, some uh, lightheadedness and some fainting issues. Yep. I I'll, I'll I'll get back on that once I've got some more issues because that's the only that's the only one I would personally endorse just as a by the by. If you're going to get the vaccine, get the uh, Johnson and Johnson vaccine. And if you're also going to do that, try and actually keep yourself in as good a shape as you can because that's going to do your body better in learning to fight this thing once it's got it in its system as well. 
So, you know, don't uh, don't let your guard down. Go ahead and take off the mask after you had it in your system. Or I believe the uh, I believe the mean time to maximum uh, antibodies is something like 28 days. And I think the uh, well, I don't know how long this one will last because it's a little bit newer. But they say the mean time on the Pfizer and Moderna is about. Uh, maybe about 18 months, and they say that the mean time on immunity for actually just acquiring the thing is about 18 months, possibly 80 years. But, I mean, we're not years out, so we're just going to have to play it by ear and see. Honestly, considering the fact that Johnson & Johnson is built off of, you know, an actual coronavirus and is a largely traditional vaccine, I, uh, I see it as a a safer option, you know, you're not going with something that as much shit as Craig would give me for saying it's a gene therapy, it's kind of a gene therapy. Hmm. Well, I see, I don't know. I, I, it, it, it is borderline gene therapy. I, mean, I know that it's in, not in technical, purely it technical is. terms, it kind of is. Right. It kind of and isn't so, also, so but... I, I will say that from what I've read, uh, while I am skeptical of the overall... I'm, I am skeptical of efficacy just because I, I think that pharmaceutical industries lie, like, all the time. Well, or they, yeah. they, they, have, they have a habit of doing that. So I don't, trust, I don't trust them as far as I can throw them, and they live in big, heavy buildings, so I can't throw them very far. Um that being said, the the uh, it does squick me out a little bit, but at the same time, the the promise of the technology is very impressive. And if uh, if it wasn't for the fact that a whole bunch of people who are all hey, the world is overpopulated, and we got to do something about this here, take our vaccine. Let's was not how the, the, the folks were running it in 2019, then going into 2020 and trying to save the planet or save everyone on the planet, I would be a little bit less skeptical for sure. Um, also, if it wasn't being this thing where they were going to be, they were trying to make the argument that we should have second class citizens, I also wouldn't be uh, as skeptical as I am. But because of all of the other stuff associated with it and because the pharmaceutical companies have a tendency to lie, I want to see data. That being said, even though it's borderline gene therapy, based on the way the technology works, it could be one of the most impressive revolutions in medicine that we've had in a very, very long time, uh, allowing us to much more rapidly uh, assess, uh, compile, and uh, you know solve pandemics before they even start. And so I would probably try to support either Pfizer or Moderna. Um, from a technological standpoint, I can agree with you. I personally would never take either one of them, but I do like the technology. And as a yep. matter of fact, you know what, there is another article I was thinking about throwing in here. I mean, we might as well, because this is literally the perfect segue. But uh, personalized cancer vaccines using these MRA technologies. Right. And, um, and, and this, is, this is very impressive, right? Training... Training your immune system to fight things before it ever actually sees the thing and not having to do like – I mean, when you start talking about uh, vaccines, one of the reasons why vaccines take a long time to produce is because they, like, try to cultivate the actual virus, and that's expensive and, and time-consuming. So these vaccines could end up being cheaper, faster, more efficient, 
and all done in a in a much more timely manner. But again, I want to see safety and efficacy data before I take something, and that's just me. Well, but what this uh, what's happening right now with this technology? It's um, I mean, it's gone on out in Mount Sinai. I mean, these tests have actually occurred. Yep. Oh crap! <laughs> oh, that's funny. My uh, my all caps thing comes up with Biden ATF uh, shipping. Yeah, false claims about a uh, shot down. Oh yeah, yeah. Look, look into uh, look into David Chipman. He's he's got a, a lovely story past. I would recommend having a drink candy and or a smoke because it's entirely possible that you'll be quite furious by the end of your read. But anywho. Uh, about the uh, other point here, a personalized cancer vaccine that's being used now is using these technologies, and what they're doing, it's not not as you say to actually pre-treat these people, but to go into these folks that have had these cancers. What they're doing is they're taking a sample of the cancer and kind of making the body learn that this is a uh, this is a thing to attack with the immune system. Right, yep. And it's working. It's working really, really well. And some of the worst effects in people have been basically nothing happened. They're no worse for the wear other than they were a little sick for a few days. And the best results out of these trials so far, and these are phase one trials. These aren't even, you know, long days in. But uh, what's happening to these people is maybe they'll get uh, get a tumor excised. Excised? Yeah. Okay. Uh, well, yes, if you're talking about removing it. Yeah. But they'll get a tumor excised, and then that'll be analyzed. They will make up the, uh, make these custom you know, instructions for you, inject you with the instructions uh, in the form of these mRNA vaccines so that your body knows what it fights against, that it makes these things, it kills them, and then it has, eh, to put it in simple terms, the blueprint of the thing that it needs to now fight. And what it will do is with the microscopic amounts of uh, tumorous material or cancerous material that has the same, shall we say, genetic profile as tumor that's been removed, it knows that that's the thing it has to destroy. So it cleans up the remainder and then it doesn't have a chance to migrate or mutate even. So, I mean, this is, this, this is today, actually. Well, this isn't today, but I believe this was... Uh, well, shit, actually, this came out uh, three days ago, so this is actually brand new information. So, yeah, it, these things, I think we talked about this last week or maybe the week before as a potential application, and we're actually seeing it immediately. We're seeing studies coming out, which is pretty damn good. Uh, these studies have been over an 880-day mean follow-up time, so... It's not bad. The vaccine, it says, was well-tolerated. Roughly one-third of patients developing a major injection site reaction. That's yep. that's not bad. That's kind of like what we're seeing with the Pfizer and Moderna vaccine. You know, the large majority is people are generally okay. Now, we don't know if this is going to do weird shit to people down the line. We don't know anything about this crazy quantum dot bullshit we heard something about that nobody's talking about anymore. Which really, I really hope that was a bullshit. But either way, I, I, you know, I, I mean, 
I don't know. It's. I mean, if Bill Gates is involved, so you know, you kind of yeah. can't go without being extra fucky because I mean, he's near it. Can can we at least appreciate the forward thinking of the X Files when they did this kind of crap? Absolutely. And then it came back and just wasn't the same. I saw. A no, bit. I mean, so so they they turned around. If you like the X Files, like that last the last couple seasons were weird. It was literally like somebody was on a straight drug trip, and then they tried to resurrect it, and they're like, oh. I know. Instead of going back to the first few seasons that were amazing, we're just going to basically go back to like nonstop drug-induced uh, seasons. That that sounds like a really good yeah, like cutting gargoyles and and that sort of thing. Uh, maybe maybe leave that to the warehouse, you know? Yeah. Which, by the way, excellent excellent sci-fi show. Check it out. It's uh, Warehouse Thirteen. Yes. Warehouse yeah. Thirteen. It's it's good TV. So, and there's so, actually yeah. a little bit of science in some of those episodes. There is. There is. And and if you like that, you will probably also like The Librarians. Um, that is very, very similar. And, of course, uh, I'm not familiar with that one, but I try and reference TV from a slightly less, uh, shall we say, paused era. Uh, no, I mean, The Librarians is, is fairly old, actually. Oh, excellent. Um, like, I mean, I don't, I don't think they're diving into it. I mean, how old is Librarians? But it's basically, it is, it is, uh, it was, uh, what is it? It's the Librarian. It's kind of like a little bit more. Oh, oh, I think I heard about that. The Librarian. Is, the Librarians was 2013 to 2018. Uh, I think it was also in. They also had a couple of movies prior to that. Um, oh, yeah, that's a little bit past my era. I was getting out of television by then. 2013 to 2018, it is basically, it, it's almost identical to Warehouse 13. Oh, okay. That's right. uh, yeah, they they have very similar, like, it plays very similar to Warehouse 13. Like, it's its own unique thing, but it's not its own unique thing. The librarians and the crown of King Arthur. Okay, fair enough. Yeah. And it's based off of a series of movies that were uh, like TNT movies, and it was basically like that in a movie. Oh, well, fair enough. Well, it ran up to 2018, so that's, that's not a bad run. <coughs> Speaking of, of all the things in all the world to uh, break records, It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia is now the longest-running sitcom on television in the world. Oh, my God, that's still running? Yeah, actually. Wow. Yeah. It's um, wow. We've uh, we've we've watched the uh, we've watched our our little Philadelphia kids uh, grow into something they probably probably never expected. To to put it lightly. <sighs> well, that reminds me of something funny I saw on. Uh, January 6th of this year. The kids attempt to fortify election. Oh, no, sorry. The gang. The gang, uh, the gang goes to Washington. Mm. Yeah. Well, that's, that's a slightly inside baseball joke for anybody that follows at least both of those topics. But, hey, it's a little funny. And a little funny is pretty good in a world that's pretty dark and half on fire. So, 
Everybody, thanks for tuning in. Uh, give me a follow at that fake guy, Dan. You can look up uh, Steve. I can't guarantee you'll get a reply or a follow back or anything, but he's at Ratman720. If you got anything for him, uh, feel free to hit me up. I'll be ha- happy to uh, convey the message. And if you got any ideas, topics, or anything else, uh, let me know. There might be a website soon, but there is a very real possibility of streams soon, and and also a real possibility that the show could go uh, for a live recording. So we'll see how that goes. I would love to take some live questions. That would be freaking dope. So anyway, Ooh, that could be fun. It could. It could be horrible too. But it could I be mean, very horrible. But I mean, it's going to be good horrible because it's a live stream. So you know, why not, right? Yeah, we haven't we haven't done anything like that. That would be fun. That yeah. could be that could be a lot. All, all all twenty people who who uh, care to tune in. Hey, you know, people like the live streams on this sort of stuff. There's something about that uh, that talk radio energy that people really yeah. get into. And I, yeah. I don't know why. I enjoy some talk radio. It's better than half of the fucking terrible music that comes out. Uh, speaking of, I've, for some reason there are people that are listening to this that don't know I'm a DJ. Tuesday nights, erithradio.co.uk. Uh, Tuesday, 3 to 10 Eastern Standard. Comes on midnight, GMT, 4 p.m., Pacific, and I'm playing synthwave and some brand new cutting edge music. That's all good. I mean, I'm playing it, so of course it's good. But yeah, you know, I might be biased, but I'm not because it actually is good. So anyway, it's been a pleasure, everybody. We'll talk to you again soon, and uh, try and get in touch if you got anything for us. We'd love to hear from you. See you soon. <laughs>